All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your formerly miraculous speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about City of Stairs by Robert Jackson Bennett. This is a book that was originally published in 2014. And this episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome, truly, truly generous Patreon supporters, which is why it is showing up unexpectedly in the middle of the month as a bonus episode. And I'm really grateful for that. As I've said before, commissions are just a hugely important part of our business. They're how we stay on the air. But also, I have to say, this was just an awesome book. I had never heard of Robert Jackson Bennett before. That's always an exciting prospect for me. It's a big part of why I do this show. It's one of the principal reasons I started ATOS was so that listeners would guide me toward writers who, uh, well, who began their careers in this century in particular. Uh, is a big blind spot in my, uh, my reading. And I'm really glad that I was guided in this particular direction because City of Stairs was phenomenal. So, all right, I'm, I'm eager to get straight into it. So let's do it. Let's, uh, let's take a deep breath and talk about City of Stairs. So, okay, up front, we're in for a big helping of world building today. City of Stairs is set in a secondary world, a world that is not our own. It's a fantasy novel, right? It's also the first in a series, though it is a self-contained story. But I'll talk more about that later. Right now, we need to learn about the world. And there is a lot going on here. Bennett is playing with a lot of discrete elements. I'm going to try to break that down for us, which means that if you've read this book and if you love the world as much as I do, it may be a few minutes before I even mention the thing that you think is most important about the world. But uh, I'll get there, I promise. As I always do, I want to think about this speculative world in terms of its material culture first. I have a, a real historical materialist bent, uh, which I'll talk about in the next segment, in fact. There is a lot about this imaginary world, this speculative world that feels like the late Victorian world, the late 19th century, right here in, in the real world on planet Earth. First, it, it's an entire globe, right? The world is mapped out. Its parts are all connected. Sea travel and shipping are robust. Trains are a standard mode of transportation. And electrical telegraphs provide long distance communication. Printed books are easily accessible. Newspapers circulate widely. Photography is here, though we are told that's a very recent innovation, but still, it's here. People smoke cigarettes, they drink coffee, uh, though our protagonist, we should say, prefers tea. But in all, it, it feels very much like the world that we meet in a Sherlock Holmes story, right? It's familiar to us. But there is one important material difference. Although this is a world of steel, it is not a world of gunpowder. Cannons exist, but they're rare. Uh, they also perhaps seem to be the purview of one state only. And rifles or muskets or pistols, they simply don't exist. This is a world of crossbows. So that's the material culture. But the late Victorian world is not only the world of Sherlock Holmes, right? It is also the world of Rudyard Kipling. And so colonialism is at the core of this novel. And so it is time for us to go meet Bennett's speculative cultures. Our protagonist is from Sepur, uh, though none of her action is actually going to take place there. And Sepur is basically India. You can hear that in the name, which sounds a lot like the city Jaipur. And the, the pur element in this place name is simply the word for you know, city or, or settlement that is in use in the Indian subcontinent. It's got a really fun 
etymology. I won't actually go into that, uh, holding myself back here, but it is basically, per is basically cognate with the Greek word polis, which also just means city. Also, the word for monarch in Saper is kaj, K-A-J, which is really just replacing the letter R in Raj with a, a K, right? There are some other elements as well that let us know that Saper is basically India. Uh, this is things like food culture, uh, as well as some information that we get about the climate, also just its location on this planet. And so... If we're in a world that is essentially late 19th century Earth, just with some of the particulars muddled up a little bit, then we would naturally expect that Sepur is under the control of a foreign power, some kind of analog to the British Empire. But this, this is where Bennett starts to play. He flips this idea around completely. Four generations ago, and, and for a few centuries, at least as I understand it, uh, this was, in fact, true of Sepur. But now, Sepur, India, is the global empire, in fact. And our story takes place in an overseas city that is occupied and controlled by Sepur. Though this city is given a, a fair bit of domestic autonomy, uh, at least within certain parameters, this city is the capital of the empire that used to control Sepur, and so it is very much a story about the turning of the colonial tables here. That city, the city where the story is going to take place, in fact, the city of stairs, is called Bulakov. And you can hear in that name, right? You can hear that this is an analog to Russian, that that of O-V or off O-F-F. Uh, this is common in Russian family names. In, in fact, that's what it means, right? It literally just means part of the Bulik family or, or you know, like part of the Rachman family. If you're thinking about uh, Rachmaninoff, the composer, someone I think about a lot, actually. But that does not seem to be what Bennett is actually going for here. But it is still a sound that... Anglophones, like me, probably you also, uh, associate with the sound of Russian. And Bulakov is in, uh, it's in a harsh uh, climate, a wintry climate. People wear furs, and the whole thing really does feel like Moscow or, or, or Petrograd. We never learn any real name for the state that Bulakov was the, the center of. This land is just called the continent, capital C there. And this is never explained. But we do also get the impression that Sepur is a collection of islands, or, or maybe one large island in a collection of other islands that's not clear to me, at least not in, you know, in this book. And also, we get the impression that the one other culture we meet in this book is also made of islands. And so it seems that this is the single large landmass on this planet. We definitely know that this landmass was not always a political unity. It was not always a single state. That is something that came about only a few centuries before the conquest of Sepur. It resulted from a negotiated cessation of hostilities that had broken out and, and really just been happening for a long time uh, among six independent states. And the cessation of hostilities also then resulted in the creation of a new state, a single state, with a brand new city they were going to make for a capital to serve as the capital, and that city was Bulakov. Now, I have tons of questions about this that are totally unanswered, at least in this book. For example, did the people of these six independent states share a single language? That seems to be the case. But that also strikes me as odd, because most of these other place names on the continent are not Russian. They have Stan in them. In our world, the places we think of with Stan in them, like Kazakhstan and Pakistan, in those cases, the word Stan derives from Persian, just means 
land, like, you know, uh, we put in place names like England and Scotland or, you know, England and Scotland, I think is how people would prefer I pronounce those. But that's what it's doing there, right? So that suggests that the, the people in these regions are speaking a language that is is different from the language spoken in Bulukov, that in fact, it's the second cousin of whatever is being spoken in Bulukov. It's not the exact same language. It also suggests that their language is actually the first cousin of the language spoken in Seypur, which is also interesting, right? To say that it's actually closer uh, to the language spoken in Seypur than the the language spoken in the, the region in which Bulukov is located. But in the end, I have to say, none of that really matters because it does not show up in the book. Bennett is not Tolkien. He's also not trying to be. This is just how my mind processes names in fantasy books. This is just happening sort of passively in my brain while I'm, I'm getting exposed to these names. I think it's fun to think about these things. It's also helpful for me to think about these things, to think through the world in this way. What really matters, though, for our purposes is simply to say that What we've got going on here with this world is that the colonized fantasy South Asians have turned the tables on the fantasy Europeans who used to be their colonizers, and our story is going to follow the adventures of one of these fantasy South Asians, a Sepuri, as she navigates some tricky situations in occupied Bulakov. And so it sounds like I'm just about to transition into talking about the plot, but uh, that was a big psych. We are not ready to talk about the plot yet at all, because in fact, there is still one massive bit of world building that we need to talk about. Because in this imaginary world, gods really exist, and gods intervene in human affairs, and not just in human activities, but they intervene in the world on the behalf of humans. They build cities for humans. They alter the weather or entire climate systems. They perform all sorts of other small miracles. Uh, I'll give some examples of those types of miracles in, in just a moment. Now, I say exist and I say the world, but that is not quite right either. The gods used to exist, but they've all been killed. And that happened four generations ago. They were killed by the Sepuri. They were killed by the Sepuri when they rose up against their oppressors. Because... The gods were really only the gods of the Continentals, who were a sort of chosen people. And the power they received from the gods is actually what enabled them to conquer Sepur and uh, I guess other parts of the world as well. Uh, An example of this, right, is that Continental soldiers wore a kind of miraculous armor that protected them from crossbow bolts. I want to be clear, though, before we get too much further in this, that the word gods is not the word in the story. Bennett uses divinity for these people. And they were people. They were individuals with personalities and interests and moods, very much like the the Greek gods, for example. There were six of them. They each had their own chosen people. Uh, These were the six states that later unified and then constructed Bulakov as a, a new capital. And their miracles reshaped the continent in massive ways. For one, they gave the continent, or at least I should say the region around Bulakov, that's all we get explicitly in the text, but gave the region around Bulakov a mild climate instead of the harsh wintry climate that it has naturally. Most of Bulakov itself was, in fact, divinely constructed. It's really just all magical. And Bulakov is not the only city that was largely magical. One of the gods built a living city out of plants, and, and millions of people lived there. 
And as I said, there were also all these small miracles and also miraculous objects. And let me just read to you a list of them that we get in a an actual literal catalog in the, in the, in the book. Uh, I'll just read this to you so that you get a taste of what this was like. And I, I really loved this segment of the book as well. Glass of Kivri, small marble bead that supposedly contains the body of St. Kivri, who changed gender every night as part of one of Jukov's miracles. Small Iron Key, name is unknown. But when used on any door, the door sometimes opens onto an unidentified tropical forest. Bust of Ahanas. Once cried tears that possessed some healing properties. Users of the tears also had a tendency to levitate. Nine stone cups. If left in a place where they receive sun, these cups would refill with goat's milk every dawn. And that is just a sample of all the crazy objects that were part of everyday life in Bulakov and also elsewhere on the continent just four generations ago. So, what happened? The Continentals, they occupied Sepur, and in this capacity, they massacred a Sepuri community, a community that, from their perspective, got out of line. And this massacre inspired a very clever Sepuri man to do some science, uh, to do some science in order to figure out how to kill a divinity. He did. He developed this into a weapon. He led an uprising and then also an invasion. He killed the gods as they led armies into battle, or he hunted them down, in fact. But the weapons he used are all gone. What they were is something of a mystery, right? So you can count on that coming, coming back as soon as we get that, in, that information introduced in the book. We know that that is going to come back. But it was not just a matter of, of getting rid of the gods as a sort of helping force for the Continentals. It's also the fact that as the gods died, the miracles that they had performed, no matter how long ago they were performed, those miracles were undone. And maybe it's not a big deal if your magic goat's milk cups stop working, but it is a huge deal if your entire city disappears, or half of it, or even just your house. It's a huge deal when your climate changes instantly and your whole transportation and communication system stops functioning. And this all happened in a short period. It's, it's an episode now called The Blink. And what this is, is reality massively reshaping itself. Millions died in accidents during The Blink. And then, of course, right after that, there's been continued suffering as an entire material culture has stopped functioning properly. Bulakov was hit especially hard because it had been the seat of all the gods, and this white and gold city that had been miraculously built by the gods, by the divinities, just disappeared and left behind only the parts of the city that humans had constructed through entirely mundane means. And there was not much of that. And so one consequence of this is that now there are actually just weird stairs that lead to nowhere in seemingly random locations around the city, sometimes even just floating up in the sky. And this is why Bulakov is called the City of Stairs. And hey, that also happens to be the name of the book. All right. So all of that, finally, all of that finally is the setting. Uh, let's meet some characters. Let's talk about the plot. Ultimately, City of Stairs is a political thriller. And like many political thrillers, it starts out as a fairly straightforward detective story. There's a Sepuri historian who's in Bulakov uh, to do some archival research. Now, Continentals are forbidden from studying their own history, also worshipping their gods or even mentioning them or having any depictions of them. All of that is forbidden as well. And so, in short, really, their entire culture is suppressed by their colonial oppressors. 
And of course, those colonial oppressors, the Sepori, you know, from their perspective, right, they think that this is helping them prevent the tables from being turned again, right? They are very frightened, very terrified of being conquered and subjugated and oppressed themselves again. And so they are working very hard to suppress their former oppressors. Anyway, the point of this is simply to say that letting a Sepori study continental history is upsetting to the continentals. And this scholar who's been sent here to do exactly this, he ends up dead. He ends up murdered. Now, enter our detective, Shara Komed. In reality, she is the great-granddaughter of the hero who killed the gods. Uh, she also works as an intelligence operative for the foreign ministry, which happens to be run by her aunt. But She's undercover. Uh, she's undercover as a low-level diplomat. She's using a different name. She is also fascinated by continental history. And in fact, the historian was a friend of hers. And so this investigation is personal. Ultimately, she discovers that one of the gods is still alive. And this is the god of judgment. And the reason he survived is actually that uh, even before the Sepuri invasion, he had gotten a little too into making crazy rules and then also punishing people for breaking them. And so the other gods had actually imprisoned him. So that's item one. Item two is that Shara is not the only person who knows this. There is a conspiracy of religious zealots who have located this god's prison and have figured out how to release him. Now, obviously, Shara wants to put a stop to this, and she does. It's an intense climax. A lot of people die in this climax. They die at the hands of this vengeful god of punishment. But that's skipping a lot, right? <laughs> you might be thinking, wait, hold on. What about the murder investigation? Who did it? For most of the book, we actually think that this was the religious zealots. And we think that because they were very interested in the scholar's work. They had a janitor stealing uh, some of his work for them to look through. But all they wanted was the work. They, they needed to find a particular miraculous object in order to carry out their nefarious plan. And so they didn't kill him. They didn't have any need to do that. Uh, and in fact, doing that would have hindered their plans. In fact, it did hinder their plans. I mean, they didn't kill him. But the fact that he died and suspicion fell on them uh, winds up thwarting their plans to begin with. So, you know, in that case, in that sense, not killing them was, in fact, the smart choice. But who did kill him? Well, it was an inside job, it turns out. Uh, one of the secrets that the historian uncovered was actually about Shara's family. It turns out that the Sepuri leader who killed the gods, this is Shara's great-grandfather, uh, it turns out that he was himself the son of a god. This was not an unusual thing in those days, but it does mean that his descendants are partially divine. Now, this does not include Shara. She definitively does not have any kind of miraculous powers, but it does include her aunt, her aunt who runs the intelligence agency. Why this matters is simply that being partially divine is now illegal. And so Shara's aunt might face execution, uh, but even if she avoids that, she will certainly lose her position, and she does not want that to happen. And therefore, the professor had to die before he could tell anyone what he discovered. And the book ends with Shara confronting her aunt with this information and giving her an ultimatum as well. You see, Shara is an idealist, and she has a vision for a better world, and it is now going to be her turn to be in charge. And that is uh, the end of the book, though there is a ton, a ton more to talk about even after this overly lengthy segment. All right, let's talk some themes and motifs. 
So yeah, that was a, a pretty big recap segment. So I am therefore going to endeavor to get back on track here, a uh, time track that is. As a trained historian, also as an occasional history professor, what I really want to talk about is Bennett's depiction of historians at work, uh, what he thinks history is, uh, just to say history as, as an activity, history as a form of scholarship. But I'm actually not going to. I'm going to save that for a conversation that we can have together on, on the forums. Uh, that way I can give the, the whole 10 minutes that I want to devote to this segment, uh, I want to give all 10 of those minutes to continental religion and in particular, the moral and ethical system of this religion. Bennett has just done an awesome job of creating a world that is mostly shades of gray. Now, sure, right, the Sepuri were oppressed by the Continentals for generations, and so the Continentals are very definitely the bad guys in that situation. And then we very definitely cheer for the Sepuri as they are overthrowing their oppressors when we're getting all of this backstory. But then they don't reset to neutral they simply become the oppressors themselves. But then the question is, can we really truly sympathize with the Continentals, even though they are now the, the oppressed, can we still really sympathize with them? And this is a really awesome setup. It's a, a very hard-boiled sandbox for our characters to go play in. But still, in the end, there are some clear-cut villains in this story, and they are religious zealots. But not just any religious zealots. They are the adherents of Colcan. Colcan is the god of judgment. He's depicted as a judge looming over people in continental art, but his judgments are harsh. His rules are just totally crazy. Uh, at least this is the case by the time that he's imprisoned by these other gods. And at this point, when this happens, he really is just the god of punishments. He operates a hell, right? He operates a kind of punitive afterlife for people who fail to obey his commandments. As you can guess, right, even if you haven't read this book, a lot of those commandments are about bodies. It's about shaming humans for having bodies to begin with. You get rules about food, about clothing, rules about hair and grooming, a lot of rules about sex, right? People in general are required to cover their skin, but women are the real targets of this rule. And women are just deemed inherently inferior to men. They exist really only to tempt people men. They exist only really to give men a temptation to overcome in order to demonstrate their own purity. And if you've got a worldview like this, right, naturally, sex itself has to be bad. Uh, sex in all its forms, but especially anything outside a very narrow range of heterosexual activities. And the punishments for violating any of these rules is death, but not just death. It's death followed then by torment in hell, uh, torment in hell until you have been purified. But of course, it is also not just up to Colcan to punish people for these offenses. It's also up to other humans to do that, too. In all, this is a vision of a society organized around shame and punishment. It's a society in which people are terrified of each other, also terrified of themselves. This is obviously not a society that any of us would want to go live in. Even the other gods did not want anything to do with this, and one of the other gods was kind of just the god of parties and orgies. And so those two ideals, totally incompatible, right? And in the end, they imprisoned Colcan so that they could get on with their own lives, right? These other divinities could get on with their own lives and also just let people be people. But then the Continentals are conquered. They're also then oppressed. And people want to know how this could have happened. And the answer must be because we strayed from the path 
of righteousness. It must be, right? Surely it must be the case that this disaster is actually a divine punishment. It's actually a divine judgment for failing to adhere to Culkin's commandments. And yeah, right? We see this type of thinking in our own world all the time. Hurricanes, pandemics, all sorts of other horrible things are really only happening because people are having evil sex. And we dismiss those people. Certainly I do. I assume you do too. And rightly so. Those people should be dismissed. But what if those people decided to do something about it? That is essentially what Bennett has done here. He's essentially written a fantasy story about what it would be like if the Westboro Baptist Church got their hands on a weapon of mass destruction. In this case, the weapon of mass destruction is a god. And of course, it does not go very well. Shara has to save the day. Now, if this is all you know about the book, right, if you have not read it and are just listening to me tell you a little bit about it, then you might think that what Bennett is up to here is portraying religious people as bigots and zealots and religion itself as bad. But he's not. And to illustrate that, we need to talk about Olvos. Olvos is another divinity. She's the god of charity and help and kindness. Where Colcan is the god of punishment and retribution, Olvos is the god of mercy and forgiveness. Like Colcan, she was not actually present when the Sepores killed the gods, and, and so therefore she also survived. But the reason that she wasn't there is not that she was imprisoned like Colcan was. What, what happened is that she left the world of her own accord because she objected to the unification of the gods and the, the creation of Bulikov to begin with. Nonetheless, her worship is outlawed along with the worship of all the other gods. Yet still, it is very clear that she has adherents in the world the same way that Colcan does. And these are people who operate soup kitchens and hospitals, also other forms of charity. They also seem, to, to me anyway, my reading of the book is that they, they seem to be wandering around in search of people to, to help. I mean, they're essentially Franciscans, uh, monks in the order of St. Francis, I should say, uh, people who are dedicated to living a life of uh, service to the unfortunate. And at the end of the book, Shara actually meets Olvos, and she knows that it's Olvos. Olvos is how we learn about Shara's own divine ancestry. It turns out Olvos is, in fact, her great-great-grandmother. We also learn that Olvos was helping the historian, uh, sometimes subtly, eh, sometimes not so subtly, though he did never actually know who she was. But what really matters about Olvos, in, in this book at least, is simply that she presents a different picture of religious adherence than what we get with the followers of Colcan. Colkin's followers are practicing a religion that is obsessed with all the things that people aren't supposed to do, uh, also obsessed with making sure that people don't do those things. Olvos' followers don't care about that. They are practicing a religion focused on performing good deeds, a religion focused on being helpful to individuals in need. Obviously, right, the Colkin fanatics are the baddies in this story, they're the villains, Olvos' followers aren't present enough to be the good guys, but they are still a great contrast. And ultimately, we can see this contrast in the final villain of the story, right? The villain behind the inciting incident itself, uh, that murder of the, the historian. And that villain, that final villain, is Shara's aunt. Shara's aunt has been running the foreign ministry for decades, and her policy is explicitly based around oppression. She is so afraid of the Continentals being able to conquer Sepur again that she actively oppresses them. Continentals can't practice their religion. They can't have access to their own cultural legacy in any way. And that 
might actually be a policy we would agree with, or at least not find ourselves too many steps away from. Uh, Here, I'm actually thinking about the end of the Second World War and the occupations of uh, Japan and Germany. But something else that she does is the exact opposite of what the United States did following that war, following the Second World War. In that case, even after a devastating total war that raged for years, even after an insidious sneak attack, even after genocides and a host of other war crimes, even after all of that, the United States did not seek to punish all Japanese people or all German people. Instead, the United States enacted the Marshall Plan to rebuild the ruined economies of Japan and Germany, to repair the damage of the war, and just to help people heal. And just as a a quick aside here, I want to call attention to the fact that, hey, I'm presenting that rather optimistically because there were ulterior motives to the Marshall Plan. There also were plenty of American politicians who opposed the Marshall Plan, people who uh, would have voted for uh, Shara's aunt uh, if she had been running for some kind of office at this point. But what I'm driving at here is that Sepori policy right now is simply to refuse to repair the damage done by the blink uh, to prevent the Continentals from developing a fully functioning civilization again. Uh, In short, The official policy is to keep these people poor and to keep them powerless, but also to keep them hopeless. In short, I don't know, maybe I already said that. So in shorter, perhaps, I guess, uh, what she wants to do is simply to continue punishing the Continentals. But Shara has long thought that this policy is a mistake. And the first action that we see her take when she arrives in Bulakov is to remove some art that glorifies the Sepori conquest of the, the continent, even though that's kind of in private. And when she tells her aunt that she's coming home and that she's going to be taking over, she explains that she wants to do something very much like the Marshall Plan, <laughs> that she wants to build a better world for all people, a world without oppression, a world without hatred. In short, She wants to build a world that's founded on the values of Olvos rather than the values of Kolkan. And if fantasy is the literature of values, right, the literature of giving us heroes that we can aspire to emulate, heroes we can uh, aspire to live up to, then City of Stairs has nailed it. Shara is exactly the sort of hero that we need in our own world. She's a civil servant who wants to root out corruption and oppression and is capable of managing the machinery of government in order to make that happen. Uh, She's a nerdy technocrat who also happens to know some magic spells. And that's pretty cool. So, okay, let's move into our strengths and weaknesses segment. Uh, Longtime listeners to the show know that I usually prefer to start with weaknesses so that I can go out on a a positive note. But this time I'm going to reverse that order. And the reason is simply that the the weakness I want to talk about, which is actually not at all a weakness, it's totally just a matter of my taste. But uh, what I want to talk about is uh, is the, the ending, right? So so I want to start by talking about how awesome the, the book is up to the, the point of the ending. Up front, let me say, I loved this book. I absolutely adored it. This week, I organized my entire life around reading this book. I normally get up at 2 a.m. so that I can get in a few hours of, of work on, on podcast before my, my family wakes up, and then I go start my, my day job, which is dad to a toddler, also washer of all the dishes. But City of Stairs was so awesome that I was having a hard time doing unfun tasks like editing podcasts or you know, publishing them or managing the website, and that in order to do all of that work and also read this book, I started getting up at one instead of two. 
and then rewarding myself around 5 a.m. Uh, and also really, really, really hoping that my son would sleep all the way to the late part of his wake up window uh, because I really just wanted to keep reading this book. And look, City of Stairs is a book that I read while stirring pots of pasta and oatmeal. City of Stairs is a book that I read in 45 second increments while waiting for the microwave to ding or water to boil. I could not put this book down. It was awesome. And I loved this experience. It's been a long time since a book did this to me, and I really loved it. As you can imagine, and as probably I have made clear, what drew me in so much, of course, was the world. The world as a whole is very well drawn, and Bulikov in particular felt like a real place to me. And we got to see the machinery of power at various levels throughout the city, and I loved all of that. Uh, we get scenes in the office of the regional military governor. We meet city councilors and learn about electoral politics. We visit the university, and then we also get scenes in alleys looking for magic doors. I have to say that Bulikov is a hard-boiled post-war city that ranks right up there with Graham Greene's depiction of post-war Vienna in The Third Man. Uh, in fact, this whole setting very much feels like a Graham Greene novel. It's just awesome. While I did characterize the book as a political thriller, the story really goes through several different genres as it progresses. It starts out as a detective story, and then later it morphs into the political thriller as we, the readers, are realizing that the murderers must be these religious zealots who also control a few seats on the city council, and uh, they're searching for a MacGuffin of some sort. In your standard non-speculative fiction political thriller, right, that MacGuffin is often a, a secret that the baddies don't want revealed. But in this case, it's actually a historical artifact that has miraculous properties that they want to weaponize. And so there's also a bit of historical adventure here as well. I mean, it never gets anywhere near Indiana Jones level, but we get plenty of cool primary sources, and uh, we get not one, but two detailed lists of artifacts in a warehouse, and I loved it. I loved all of this. I was riveted by it, and I absolutely and heartily recommend this book to, well, to everyone. Uh, in fact, this is a book that I'm going to be forcing people to borrow from me for a very long time. The thing that I want to talk about that is not a weakness, but is still nonetheless, um, I don't know, complaint isn't even the right word. That's way too strong. But uh, simply something that I just didn't love as much about the book is the ending, the direction that it goes in the end. What I've really just characterized to you and described to you in all of my praising was really the the first two acts. And so the, the, the third act takes the story in a direction that I wasn't expecting and in a direction that is not where I would have wanted it to go, I think, if I'd been uh, been the navigator, I suppose. And maybe I should back this up a little bit and, and simply say that this is a book that I think belongs uh, side by side the new weird. That this is a book that has a lot in common with China Mieville's novel, The City and the City, a book we've done here on ATAS. Also has a lot in common with things that Jeff Vandermeer does, uh, in particular in his Ambergris stories. Uh, we're doing his novel Finch uh, coming up on ATAS here eventually. Uh, we've already done a novella uh, that takes place in that setting over on our Weird Fiction podcast, Elder Sign. Uh, that's three episodes that Brandon and I did on the novella, The Transformation of Martin Lake, which I super loved. I love Finch as well. It's a brilliant world, Ambergris. City of Stairs feels very much like those two books. And those two books are, are just examples, right? There's a whole mode of writing in the new weird that is to make up a kind of fantastical city that also feels very realistic in some ways. And that's exactly what we get here. 
And although I'm characterizing those stories as new weird, and I think that uh, pretty much everybody would say that, yes, China Mayville and Jeff Vandermeer uh, belong in what we call the new weird. But those guys are also fantasy writers, right? They're telling stories in an imaginary world. They're building an entirely self-contained speculative world and telling stories in it. Uh, that's what fantasy writers do. And this is certainly a fantasy book as well. But I think that for me, Bennett actually veers a little bit too much into the fantasy territory or you know, more than I would have liked, more than is to my taste. And really, a lot of this is just about the stakes. The stakes here get very, very high. So rather than the stakes simply being local to the city where the story is taking place, local to, to Bulikov, they get really, really big, right? They, they have the potential to reshape the entire world. And I would have preferred that Bennett keep the stakes much lower than they end up being. I would have preferred the gods to really just to stay in the backstory rather than to actually come back. I also think that I would have preferred a more Kafka-esque resolution to the plot where the world is fundamentally unchanged at the end. But as I said, all of that is just a matter of taste because Bennett handles all of that material really well. And in fact, I would enjoy reading his take on a more overt epic fantasy. I think that actually would be really cool. I know that he's written some other urban fantasy, but I would love to read him do a kind of, uh, I don't know, version of Lord of the Rings or something. That would be great. But I did kind of want my hard-boiled story just to stay hard-boiled. And so for me, the third act is, you know, if there is a weak point, and there really is not, but uh, the third act is perhaps a weak point relative to the first and second acts, these, uh, these, these first and second acts that had me foregoing sleep in order to binge read. But make no mistake at all, right? City of Stairs is one of my favorite books that I've done for ATOS so far, and I will be pushing this book on anyone who will, uh, who will let me. And in fact, I have already been trying to get Brandon to, to go read it. In fact, I'm, I'm secretly trying to get Brandon to uh, uh, not just read this first book, but then to read the second book uh, so that he and I can do a kind of joint podcast episode on it together. But uh, uh, no promises. Maybe you can help me, in fact. But all right, I think if I'm trying to enlist you in my, my own secret plots uh, against my co-hosts on the network, I think it's time to bring my review here to a close. But I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by the Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with me about the themes and the motifs, also the strengths and not quite weaknesses here that I have focused on, but especially on what I left out because I left out a lot. Uh, for one, I had really planned to talk about history and historians in this book, uh, but the recap got a little bit out of control, so I needed to cut that. But it's a little bit crazy for me to read a book you know, in which the inciting incident is the murder of a historian and to not have something to say about that. Uh, well, I have something to say about it. I just omitted it. So anyway, I would love to have that conversation with you. I would also love to talk about Sigurd, who's a character I have completely ignored. I am vaguely aware that the last book in this uh, series, a, a series of three books, I'm vaguely aware that that book is largely about him. And he is kind of the Aragorn of this story and that he is the secret king who's poised to return and set things right. And I, I recognize, I guess, that it might be better to have that conversation with me after I've read the other two books. But I do hope that people who have read this whole series will want to talk with each other uh, about what Bennett is up to here with these tropes of epic fantasy and especially the tropes about heroes, a contrast between Shara and Sigurd. That's a really fun conversation, I think, that we could have together. But okay, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. And let me once again thank the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. 
I love this book. I know I've said it a lot, but I did. I love this book so much, and I'm so grateful to have had the impetus uh, to read the book. So thank you for that commission. And I'll be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode, this one on another fantasy novel, Cats Have No Lord by Will Shetterly. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 